Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Class 3 of Fanalytics University. And this is an episode or class we are calling The Nature of Fandom. By Nature of Fandom, what we're really getting at today is a deep dive and in-depth look of the psychology and the sociology and the community or cultural forces that bond fans together. Um, I want to start this with, well, in the assignment I gave everyone was to, the, the assignment I gave everyone was to reflect upon their fandom. Have you done the assignment, Doug? Yes, I have. Sorry, I, I should always greet the student body. How are you today, uh, student body. Uh, the student body is doing well. The student body is excited about the return of sports in the coming months. And uh, yeah, the student body is enjoying not having school. Okay. Um, so what I want to start with today is a little bit of reflection on my fandom. When I think back to where my sports fandom came from, and it's, interestingly, I think that's sort of my earliest fandom across anything, entertainment, politics, sports... I come back to being a, and then, you know, some of these memories are a little bit hazy at age 52. I come back to being a second or a third grader at Naper School in, um, you can guess, in Naperville, Illinois. And where I start from is when all the kids were becoming part of a Little League team. And as the Little League does, you know, they put all the youth teams into major league jerseys. And the, the kids at Naper, Naper Elementary were, uh, you know, all affiliated with the Padres team. Uh, I was not playing Little League. At that, at that point, my dad was a, was a Welshman, uh, still is a Welshman. And, you know, my, my parents actually took a couple of PhDs, and my dad from, from England were not part of the American culture of, of Little League. So I was essentially left out at that point. Now, what sports my dad was into were European sports, soccer. Uh, I remember being dragged to a lot of uh, rugby, game, rugby matches on the weekends. Now, of course, these memories may be hazy. You know, maybe he took me to two. I wasn't interested and never, never took me to another <laughs> one again. So I, 
a little bit of a disconnect in terms of my earliest memories of sports, right? Where uh, all the other kids are playing Little League Baseball. I'm being exposed to rugby. And in general, I'm feeling left out. Now, at the same time as this is going on, when I think about the professional world of sports or what was in the, the media, I'm growing up in Chicago. Now, I don't expect you to know this, Doug, but Chicago sports in the 1970s were not characterized by a lot of winning organizations. Okay. The Cubs, perennial losers. The, the Bulls featured players like Norm Van Leer, not Michael Jordan. Uh, Bob Love, Jerry Sloan, actually, um, oddly, um, in terms of going on to success later on. Right. So the, the, the Cubs were weak. The Bears were weak. The, the White Sox, not particularly relevant. I have no idea how the Blackhawks used to do. Uh, so while the local sports are struggling, my grandfather on my mom's side was from Pittsburgh. Now, Pittsburgh in the 1970s, wow, that's actually a fun place to be a sports fan, right? Right. Uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, Pittsburgh Pirates, Steelers won four, four Super Bowls. So uh, when I think about where my affiliations were as a kid growing up, it was on the professional side at least, and that's really all there was, was the, was the Pittsburgh teams, the, the Steelers and the Pirates. Now, the other thing that comes into play when I think about my, let's say, and this is a very brief overview of my fandom journey, was going to the University of Illinois in, in the 1980s and being exposed not to the Illinois football team was, was sort of mixed. Uh, my friends and I grew up playing a lot of pickup basketball. And so this was a nice part of sports to be around because the University of Illinois basketball team was really great mm. in the 80s where you had um, you know folks like Bruce Douglas and Ephraim Winters, um, transitioning to Ken Norman, and then my senior year we had Kenny Battle, Kendall Gill, uh, Marcus Liberty, and a team that actually earned a nickname in terms of the ESPN coverage of the Dick Vitals of the world. You know, dubbed them the Flying Illini, and, and so that is you know when I think about my fandom and reflect on sort of where I'm still have true passion. My core fandom is for the University of Illinois basketball team, despite some recent struggles. I would say my secondary fandom is to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And beyond that, you know, I do still have some affinity to the Chicago teams. But I have to admit it, it's relatively, it's relatively light. That's sort of my brief story of fandom. Uh, before I sort of start to decompose that, hmm. make it all theoretical... Uh, did you do the assignment, Doug, in terms of reflecting on your uh, your fandom experiences? Yes. So as far as my earliest fandom experiences, believe it or not, I know I'm kind of known for my Georgia fandom, and that has always been part of, of me. Um, but really my most vivid early memories as a sports fan were of the New York Giants. Um, and no, I'm not from New York, nor do I have family from New York. Uh, okay. I grew up playing the video game NFL Street <laughs> by EA Sports Big. And for whatever reason, the Giants were my team. And particularly, Tiki Barber was my player. That was my guy. And I played with him on the game. 
and I started watching their games, and he soon became my hero. He kind of had this good guy reputation uh, at the time, and my dad took me to New York when I was in the fourth grade, um, and it was probably the most fun day slash event of my life up until that point was going to the Meadowlands and watching the New York Giants play the St. Louis Rams. Um, but prior to the game, we... Can I, can I interject just for a second? Yes. So about how old were you when this was going on? Oh, how old are you in the fourth grade? Oh, so nine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that. Um, so yeah, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I don't. I had, I did this thing where I always say twelve. Like I was Doug, not, if you were twelve in the fourth grade, things have gone very wrong. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just anything under the age of sixteen, I was twelve. Um, okay. So I was about twelve, and uh, yeah, before the game, I didn't realize my parents had had reached out to the Giants organization and worked out this whole thing to surprise me. And I got to go on to the field and watch the players warm up from the field. And I saw Eli Manning was very tall, um, which I wasn't the biggest Eli guy at the time, but I was amazed at how big he and Michael Strahan were. But Tiki Barber was out there warming up, and sure enough, he's walking toward us, and everyone's clamoring and freaking out. And I was taking pictures with a disposable camera, and he's, as he's getting closer, saying, Dad, look, um, I got a really good picture of him. And what I didn't know is he was walking to me to come meet me. Um, and he came and got down on one knee and shook my hand, said, hey, I'm Tiki Barber. Um, and I uh, got a little picture with him. And he scored a touchdown in that game. And I was the biggest New York Giants fan in the world. Well, that's kind of an amazing story. Um, and, and I like the two stories that we've told because they're both completely valid. They're both illustrative of where sports fandom comes from Mm -hmm. when i think about the story you've just told me uh, one of the things that actually you know probably surprisingly struck me is you even remember that it was a disposable camera Mm. right and so the the richness of the details and and the passion that was in in your voice this story involved uh, playing a video game and now i I don't i can't i'm not going to try and remember the years my guess is that the Giants were coming off a probably a very good season because I think in general, the video games, you know, the, the way that they code the players, the better players, the players that we want to play with are going to be from the better teams from the, the previous so, season. I want to interject here because I took pride in the fact that the Giants actually were not um, a playoff team when I became a fan. Okay. <laughs> and I took pride in that. And I think it probably speaks a little bit to what I'm like as a person and that, I, you know, I was like a, a real fan so that when we did go on to win Super Bowls, you know, I was I had been there for the other parts. But I just liked the player Tiki Barber. Yes, he was coded to be a very good player um, because he was a, a Pro Bowl running back. Uh, but at the time, you know, the season before it had been Kerry Collins at quarterback and then um, Kurt Warner was there mm-hmm. for a very brief stint before joining the Cardinals and Eli Manning was very young and not very good at the time. Uh, a lot of interceptions. And so, anyway, I guess it, it speaks to me as a fan, but I actually took pride in the fact that I became a fan before they became great. Well, and that's, you know, the, the, always the danger of trying to uh, sort of the, the live broadcasting or the live teaching and in terms of pulling a story from the audience and hoping it matches what you're about to say. Mm-hmm. Always the danger when you're, uh, when you're the professor or the instructor. 
but but that being said, the way you describe that, and you you've come back a couple times to the type of person you are, um, in terms of where this story and where this fandom came from, rooting for the underdog almost is what it sounds like. That it still sounds like this ended up being kind of a a nice let's say source of identity or pride for mm-hmm. you to do something different. Mm-hmm. So if you're growing up in Birmingham, you know, maybe every kid in school is is rooting for the the Atlanta Falcons exactly. perhaps as the closest NFL team yep. or the the Crimson Tide and this was a way for you to establish a unique identity of well Doug Battle is the kid wearing the the Giants jersey. Exactly. And and, and it was the same and, way with college sports uh, pulling for Georgia Growing up in okay. Alabama, everyone's Alabama or Auburn. So, and the key thing in this is also, I hear your story, and the story is, even though it's, we're just spending a couple of minutes here, very rich on the details. Mm-hmm. You're playing a video game, you're going to the stadium, you've got a disposable camera, and you're relating it to something that provides some benefits to Doug Battle, the human being, in terms of, in, in this case, setting yourself apart, that that's kind of the key mm-hmm. identity issue for, for yourself. Mm-hmm. When I think about my story, there's um, some similar themes, but some difference, some different personality differences, perhaps. Um, you know, when I when I'm telling the story about every kid at Naper School was on the the Padres, and, and there can be a difference between you know junior high or fifth grade and second grade in terms of what what your motivations are. There was a Padres community, right? Part of the Little League experience, right, is every kid gets the new gets the jersey, right? A uniform to identify themselves as part of that Padre that Padre community. Um, when I when I think about the Chicago sports versus the Pittsburgh professional sports side of my story, I think about the issue of the narratives that were available. Um, your narratives are actually a little bit more interesting because they're a little bit more complex in terms of what you wanted to be someone that was more set apart, more Mm -hmm. distinguished from, from the crowd. When I think about Pittsburgh versus Chicago, you know, one of those had a very rich history of winning, right? It was Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Lynn Swan, Willie Stargell winning World Series and Super Bowls. Uh, in the case of the Bears, it was very much struggling teams, um, and so without those sort of backbone of histories of winning, of stories of winning, of legends, it's a little bit more difficult without, let's say, the family, uh, let's say, pushing you into being a, the Lewis family is a, is a, is a, Bears, is a Bears or a, a Cubs part of the fan base mm-hmm. versus going out to Pittsburgh and it's sort of a very easy transition. And then when I get to my Illini part of the story, then I think we're full on. And and I think college is one of the things that makes college fandom so special is that the identity and the community aspects are really concrete, right? Mm -hmm. You are, I'm an Illini grad. I'm part of the Illini nation. You are a what grad, Doug? University of Georgia. You're a Georgia grad and you're part of the, what do you call it? You guys, the dog Dog nation. nation. That's right. Yes, sir. Right. And so our identity is being part of these communities. And then on top of that, you add in the winning traditions of whatever team were relevant. 
I'm just going to guess. I, I know you're a basketball guy, but I'm guessing that Georgia football might be a little bit more of a draw to you in terms of making sure that you're watching it every Saturday afternoon. I, I will seek out Illinois football, but you know my core fandom, I have to admit, is Illinois basketball. And I think it's because I've got the stories of what happened on the court with those players I mentioned, the final four run, I, I suspect. And again, you can, you, you, as, as this is going, you can, you can uh, contradict me. Mm-hmm. But a lot of your Georgia football narratives probably involve going to Notre Dame, uh, like we talked about last time, mm-hmm. or maybe it was on the podcast about beating Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something magical about college sports. Oh, there's no doubt. And one thing I love about college sports is it, it, builds an allegiance in a way that professional sports can't because you don't spend four years you know on the campus of a NFL football team where they're working out and training and playing games well and and I and I think that's a great point that the you know belonging to that community and that point of identity is permanent in the case of college right you Mm -hmm. are a you are a Georgia graduate you will permanently be part of that and so you have this permanent affiliation coupled with the the stories, uh, the the legends of Georgia football, and the fandom becomes very solid. So just to uh, wrap this up before we go into the the next segment, mm-hmm. and this is what I, I hope everyone out there that did the assignment and reflected on their fandom that you're able to identify. In particular, when I when I teach this stuff, I, I really emphasize the words identity and community quite a bit. That you're able to identify how your sports fandom becomes something that is personally important, and a big part of that is being part of a group. Um, and then, you know, a, a continuing theme throughout all of this will be the importance of what happens on the field, or this idea of the narratives of fandom. The core of uh, our class today is consumer behavior related to sports. So this is a topic that is is really about what makes people into fans. Uh, What makes consumers want to consume sports product? What makes them especially passionate or, in fact, fanatical consumers of sports? So consumer behavior is a catch-all term in academia for studying why consumers do what they do. Uh, when we talk about consumer related to sports, I find myself repeating two key words, and that that's really the the core for today's class, and that is identity and community. The relevant academic disciplines are psychology and anthropology. The psychology is related to the identity of a sports fan, the fact that being able to say I'm a fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Georgia Bulldogs for our for our uh, resident student Doug Battle. You know, this is this is about some internal psychological process. Uh, anthropology is re- uh, is the relevant discipline for studying uh, fan groups or, or fan subcultures. That being said, while identity and community are the key, I think we need to talk about stories and narratives to to get started because this is. This is really what creates the foundations for why sports are so powerful. So stories and sports go together. Everything that happens in sports is, in fact, uh, indirectly becomes a story. I mean, every do you agree, Doug? Every game that you see, 
every game that you watch, that you attend, there's a bit of a story there. And, and sometimes the stories vary in, in terms of impact or relevance, right? The uh, when And again, not to make this, I feel like in some ways this is becoming consumer behavior related to Georgia sports fandom. <laughs> but what, when you guys go out and beat down on Alcorn State versus playing... Uh, you know, Oklahoma, everything's a story, right? But the stories have different levels of impact or salience. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll see Georgia will actually, um, and, and you'll see this across some professional leagues as well, especially things like the NBA finals. I know they do this, but they'll make a little game film for fans afterwards. Um, and it will, will kind of tell a story like a little mini movie. They'll have a cinematic kind of soundtrack and they'll have, you know, the coaches talking to the players before the game in the locker room, them taking the bus, them walking on to the field, and then the series of events that go on, and then the after game, and then looking ahead to next week. So it's almost like a little TV episode every week. Yeah, it, it sounds like it's, it's a series where you get the brief recap to, to go into the next episode. Um, and, and I think that is storytelling is an incredibly powerful form of, hum- of of communication it's it's something that uh, and if you you just take a step back and you think about what would you rather hear a story about something uh, a, a documentary that's well filmed and has a lot of narrative elements and storytelling or do you want to read a list of facts and i think very obviously people prefer the former right the storytelling format is a much more powerful way to deliver impactful communications for persuasion now that i think is kind of the key to why sports create such passionate consumers more so than just about any other category because it's truly made for it's truly made for the storytelling Um, stories are powerful because they're really well suited to combine rich sets of facts and i'll go back to what i mean by rich sets of facts in in a second and to convey emotions what I mean by rich sets of facts is that if you think about any sports story or just about any any story that you know, it's almost like it ends up being a series of incidents that triggers other thoughts. So in the in the first segment to this class, you told a story about meeting Tiki Barber, right? Yes. And what, what were some of the, I mean, if you were to, you could almost retell that story as a series of key words, right? I mean, so it started off with a video game system. What was the video game? Oh, the game was uh, NFL Street. And since we're speaking of, of facts, like it was on a GameCube device and we used to play it in our living room on this uh, this little small television one of those big fat ones you know that that goes back about three feet okay and and let me not to interrupt you here but think about how great even this little interlude was so immediately start talking about the story we have a video game that leads you into specifics about the video game that leads into a discussion about the how you were playing that the the fact that you're playing it on one of these old school tube televisions in in the (laughs) living room yeah it's you know, the, the details lead to other details and the details are and, and I don't I don't think you're doing it intentionally. It's not a rehearsed story, but you're truly painting a picture with your words. Right. You are describing something that a lot of folks can relate to in terms of, you know, how they grew up playing the video games 
and you, and you can imagine that it keeps spiraling from here. And so th- this idea of a lot of a lot of folks talk about how the the mind works as an associative network. So every fact leads to a couple of other facts, which enables the story to really really convey a rich, detailed picture of what happened, even when you're using relatively few words. The other thing is, did you notice that as you were doing it, you you almost had a little bit, I don't know if it was a laugh or a chuckle, but did you notice that came out naturally? I did. I'm kind of self-conscious trying not to have that. (laughs) Well, but but for this purposes, it's great, right? Because the emotions are coming through beautifully, right? So you, we're, we're getting an expression of not just these facts, but we're also understanding that this is kind of a warm, nostalgic memory, very much a, a positive, a positive story, a positive set of incidents. And so the storytelling becomes an incredibly powerful thing because it is so rich and it is so emotion laden laden. And that is really what sports are about. Okay. So the starting point for thinking about sports consumer behavior is really the stories that we see played out on the field or in the arena, right? This is the body of knowledge, the body, and this is an incredibly important body, a pretty incredibly powerful body of knowledge because it's full of all sorts of details and it's full of all sorts of emotions. These, these stories, these, and I'm about to say these shared stories become the foundation for the fan communities that we see develop around just about every just about every team and around a, a lot of different players. Okay, so if if stories are the, this foundation for fan communities, then I think the next thing we have to talk about is the idea of what is a fan community? How do these things work? Why do these things matter? Now there's a a fairly uh, extensive academic literature that has dealt with with fandom, um, and in fact, it's sort of the earliest fandom that folks talk about, or the the earliest, let's say, modern fandom that folks talk about is uh, Star Trek fans, Trekkies. Doug, have you ever watched Star Trek? You know, I've seen one of the newer ones, uh, which probably makes me sound very young in in out of this, but. Um, I'm more of a Star Wars guy. So I, okay. when you talk about Trekkies, I'm like the equivalent for Star Wars. Well, you know, and that's that's kind of an uh, an interesting point when you say what, you've seen one of the newer ones. I've never actually been much of a Star Trek fan. But, you know, Star Trek goes back to, I think, the, the 1960s as a television program. And I, when you say one of the newer ones, it was it sort of struck me as I don't know how many iterations of Star Trek have occurred. There may actually be a you know a current one. I think there's something called Captain Picard. So this is something that uh, that continues to to move on. Now, Star Trek is interesting in terms of fandom because it has so many of the the elements that you that, that you tend to see in, in just about any fan bases, but they tend to be sort of ramped up to extreme levels. Um, you know, the, the idea of meetings, the idea of conventions, the idea of people wearing the paraphernalia or the, the uniforms that they wore on the show. Um, and now you add to it the fact that there is probably, you know, 50 years of programming associated with it. You also imagine that there is also a very extensive 
knowledge base associated with uh, with being a, a, a true Trekkie, a true Star Trek fandom. So the definition of fandom or a fandom community, and this is this is straight from Wikipedia, so straight off the internet. You may be the first professor I've, I've ever had that uh, tells the class he's pulling it straight from Wikipedia. Usually they at <laughs> least usually they at least will go to the sources on Wikipedia and link it somewhere else. Um, but anyway, I just got to say I, I respect that. You know what? That is a good point. And a tr- you're right, Doug. As a true academic, I should be afraid of pulling stuff directly from Wikipedia. You can imagine every even high school teacher complaining about that practice. <laughs> the, the thing that I like about Wikipedia for something like this, though, is that it's easy to find. And if the core ideas are okay, then I... I mean, oddly, Wikipedia has... It, has probably become the de facto standard for a lot of for a lot of research. It's probably the first thing that people see. So while most academics, I think, will want to quibble about the, the content or disagree with it, I think we should accept that for, let's say, common conversations, Wikipedia has, again, it's a strange, it, the world is a strange place in many ways in that there aren't this sort of this... Uh, editors at uh, Encyclopedia Britannica back in the day. But I, I tend to think a lot of the, the content there is a good, let's say, starting point. Okay, so uh, a fandom is defined as a subculture composed of fans characterized by a feeling of empathy and camaraderie with others who share a common interest. Fans typically are interested in even minor details of the objects of their fandom and spend a significant portion of their time and energy involved with their interest often as part of a social network with particular practices. Okay, so Doug, as a obvious Georgia sports fan, yes. does this definition capture your experience? And let me ask you a few detail a few more specific questions. Is there specialized knowledge uh, involved in being a Georgia football fan? Yes, there there absolutely is and uh, I think the degree of fan that you are also requires more knowledge for for being more of a super fan. So for me, the Spike Squad, the student group that I was a part of, where we painted up for the games, they actually in your you have to interview for it, which is kind of funny. Um, you have to interview for it, and they will quiz you. Well, can on, you can you go back just for a second and tell the people what the Spike Squad is? Yes, I apologize. The Spike Squad is the group of crazy Georgia students that paint up from head to toe and have shoulder pads on with spikes. Kind of like the black hole for the Oakland Raiders, kind of like those fans. Uh, but it's all college students, and it's the front, lo- front row of the student section. So essentially, we would have to interview to become a part of this, and they would want to know that you're a real fan. And to determine that, they would quiz you on Georgia's history and Georgia football. And so I think that special okay, knowledge absolutely is a part of being a quote-unquote true fan. And so let's let's go through this piece by piece. A, a true fan that that's an interesting phrase, right? So no um, no imposters allowed. So to be part of this community, you have to have knowledge and understanding of the the entity, which in this case is uh, I don't know a lot of lore, a lot of knowledge about Herschel Walker and Vince Dooley, perhaps. Yeah, that, that's certainly the idea. Okay, um, how much time do you devote to Georgia football? Typically, it's it's more so during football season, but um, 
I guess contrary to what some people would believe, it is a year-round fandom. We're keeping up with recruiting, with coaching changes, facilities, all the rest. There's there's a lot going on. I mean, we're keeping up with players who aren't going to play at Georgia for another three or four years if they come at all. Um, all that to say, during the season, it's more time-consuming. And I would say someone like me spends more time following the team not during games than during games. Like, yes, watching games is part of being a fan, but there's so much more. And every week I'm reading into injuries and, uh, you know, scouting out the next team. And well, I'm starting to sound crazy um, as I say this, but, you know, it's it's certainly a, a time-consuming hobby, really, for someone like me. And uh, it's, it's also a big, it's a big part of my social life. I mean, that's kind of how my friends and I, during football season, keep up with each other. People text me and, you know, what do you think about, uh, the quarterback change or, or, you know, the offensive coordinators play calling on, on Saturday. That was actually my next question. Do you know other fans and do you connect with them uh, using the language of, of, you know, college football, of Georgia football? Yeah. Yeah. So I do, I have some, some of my best friends I've met that way, but there's also, it's kind of fun with like Georgia football for me is that really anyone that pulls for them automatically kind of becomes a friend. Like if I'm at a game, you can pretty much make friends with anyone because you share something that's important to you right out the gate, which is so important for uh, for friendship. And so, you know, it's it's pretty easy to make friends with fellow dogs. Well, and l- let me ask you something because you know, as you describe this, and it, it sounds like you're 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 ticking all the boxes in terms of there being a fandom subculture related to Georgia football. When you're talking about sharing things, would it be uh, would you object if I said, well, what you're sharing is uh, you're sharing stories related to to the program, whether it's stories about the the last game, the next game, this recruit who's six foot six, three hundred and fifty pounds, literally a a monster from Louisiana that's leaning towards the dogs. I mean, is it a collection of stories that you're sharing across that network? Oh, it absolutely is. And I can't tell you how many times I've met someone and we find out that we've been at the same game and we kind of retell our experience from that game and what it was like for each of us individually. And so, yeah, it's it, that's all it is, is a series of stories kind of being told by people who share them in some way. Okay, so to sum this up and, and to sum up this both what fandom is on a theoretical basis and on an empirical example from the from the class is that fandoms are communities with a strong point of differentiation right you're interested in different things whether it's a specific college football program whether it's a 1960s 1970s sci-fi series Um, and in addition there is some cost of being a member you Mm -hmm. have got to have the knowledge you've got to have signs of allegiance Got to know the history, know the team. You have to wear the uniform, in fact. Yeah, and you got I mean, part of it is a literal cost of uh, going to games and owning, you know, a jersey or, or clothing that, you know, associate you with the team. So I think there's a literal cost to being a fan as well, even though now, there's I not a say, membership fee, <laughs> but, but well, there essentially uh, is. Over the course of being a a teacher and a researcher interested in fandom, 
what you just said really resonates with me because I have begun to believe that a key thing, and, and so you know what, I'm a marketing prof, I'm a marketing professor by job title. That you know, very often I'll get the question of, well, what is special about sports? Is being a sports fan different than being a fan of a consumer product like you know Apple or Starbucks or McDonald's? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I have come to believe over the years is that you can almost say there's a clothing test. Mm. And so when you mention that one of the costs is that you need to, or that you don't need to, but you probably are going to have to buy a jersey or a t-shirt at some point Mm -hmm. to wear the uniform of being in that fan base. I think that's a real nice shorthand test for where, where, where we go beyond just what you might call consumer loyalty to really reaching the level of passion or fanaticism that you see in the world of sports. It's also interesting to me because the, the other elements, so I said at the very start of this segment that what I emphasize is community and identity. When you talk about wearing the Jersey, I think a big part of that is projecting your membership in that community or specifically identifying as a member of that community. Mm. So this this gets to more of the, the psychological side of fandom. And it actually speaks to a very fundamental question in all of humanity. In fact, I was going to say psychology, but this is broader than an academic field. This question of who am I? And so I would I would ask you the question um, and asking the question, who are you is is a little too it's a little too dramatic. But you just imagine a scenario that if you're in a bar in uh, well, I, I mean, I was about to say if you're in a bar in Athens and you're meeting someone new, how do you describe yourself? But given that that's Athens, Georgia, maybe it's too obvious of a question. If you're in a bar in the Atlanta metro area and you're asked to describe yourself, what are the th- what are some of the things that that you would tell the person, Doug? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would tell them, you know, I'm a Georgia grad. I, I went to the University of Georgia. Uh, I'm a podcaster. That's something that I enjoy. And okay, I'm, can I, I, I let's let's go through this a little sort of piece by piece. Okay. I want to keep going though. Um, so you're a Georgia grad and you're a podcaster. I think very, very quickly, you're starting to tell the person just again in a few key facts, you're trying to tell that person quite a bit about yourself, right? So you went to college in Athens, Georgia, UGA. So you can almost imagine that just as we we're talking about in terms of the, the discussion of stories and narratives, their brains start to process that information of like, well, what does that mean? probably means that he went to a given set of bars in, in that area, went to the football games, right. had some, you know, had some, you know, we're, maybe that person went to the SEC, right? So it starts to form a very rich picture. When you talk about the podcasting, you're really communicating that you're, you're interested in, you know, you're not just interested in talking to a microphone in your basement, potentially, right? It, it's <laughs> also that you're interested in creating and communicating, right? Absolutely. Yes. And I think also for me, like being from Alabama, when I meet people there and tell them I went to Georgia, it kind of tells them, oh, like there's like he's different, you know, and that's I think that's something I communicate through that is that because I didn't go to Alabama and Auburn. So I think there's there's other little things you can communicate just by saying something like that, by saying where I went. How quickly does being a member in the what do you call it? The spike squad. How quickly does that come up? (laughs) 
Um, it, it depends on the person. <laughs> if I'm trying not to freak them out, um, it'll come up like later. It'll be like it'll be like one of those like fun facts I kind of keep in my back pocket so I can still have something to like surprise them with <laughs> down the road. Okay. But if it's someone that's like, if I meet someone and they're like, oh, you went to Georgia? Oh, I'm like the biggest Georgia fan. I'm like, well, did you know? <laughs> You've probably seen me on television. Good, good. Um, so, so yeah, it really depends on the person. Okay. And, and so in, in psychology, there is, there, there's an idea called the self-concept, which is basically the, the totality of how people think about themselves. So the thoughts, the ideas, the beliefs about who people are. Right. And within that, there's an idea that social identities play a key role in this. Social identities are just categories to which people belong. And so, you know, a standard textbook might say, might give examples of, well, you're, you're male or you're female. You're a college student. You're a podcaster or a communications person by profession. You're a Democrat or a Republican. But I think very quickly, and, you know, there's probably even more so for the folks, very, very quickly in the general population, more so for the folks listening to this, I am a fan of sports fe- sports team XYZ mm-hmm. probably comes up pretty quickly. Yeah. And if you don't if you don't want to think about it in terms of yourself, how quickly when you're describing your friends do you describe their sports fandom? Oh yeah. I think of my <laughs> I got this one friend and it's the very first thing I would say about him to anybody will say say, you know, be like, Oh, you know Wes? Oh yeah, you know what? Big Georgia fan. Man, that guy. <laughs> He, I don't know if I know anyone that cares about those Georgia Bulldogs as much as him. And he's at every event, not just football either. So, yeah, it, it certainly comes up when I'm describing my friends. Yeah, it, it's, it's a fundamental part of our it's a fundamental part of our culture. So the, so the interesting thing about social identities is that very often there's an there's an active choice process involved. Right. Mm-hmm. People are choosing to adopt the identity of a sports fan or a fan of Star Trek or a fan of, you know, name your, of K-pop. People essentially put these on as, you know, just like the, in in some ways it's very similar, right? So by adopting on a given day that I'm a, uh, identifying as an Illini sports fan, it's not that different than putting on an Illini t-shirt. And so if people are choosing these identities, right? You're telling people in a bar that you are a fan of, of a given team. There must be some value to that, right? So what is the value in putting yourself out there as a fan of a given team? So what do you think, Doug? Yeah, I think a lot of times uh, you're hoping for, or for me at least, I'm hoping for a connection with that person. Um, if they value, or if they know someone, you know, it's like socially... You can almost network that way. Oh, you're a big Georgia fan. My dad went there. Oh, what years? Oh, he's there the same year as my mom. You know, so I think there's value there. I also think people kind of take ownership of the success of a team or of, of something they're a fan of, which is okay, really well, interesting. Let's, let's go. Let's go through this piece by piece. So the first yeah. thing, this this idea of um, the, trying to make a connection. So identifying that you are part of a given community or a tribe, right? That you're a member. You're somehow you're, you're connected. And, and part of that yeah, definition like, of the subculture was there's a social network, right? Yeah, so you're exactly. signaling that you're part of 
the same social network or at least that there's some common ground, something for you guys to talk about, right? Yeah. And it, like, I know it's a cliche that people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Uh, but it, I mean, there is some truth to that. And I think fandom reflects that as people like being or feeling like a part of something big, something, you know, that yeah. as in a kind of an individualist society that we can't feel without having that kind of collective spirit. Well, and, and, and I, one of the things that is revealed in this conversation is there can be, even be layers to this this type of fandom, right? So you might start off by mentioning that you're a Georgia fan. Perhaps that person went to Alabama. Then yeah. I suppose the common ground becomes that you're both SEC fans, right? Well, it becomes that we both hate Auburn, and that, that is a okay. <laughs> frequent conversation that I have. <laughs> right. Well, and and that's, that's, that's the beauty of it, right? So you, we went from... Georgia to Alabama, and then we've got this association that we both hate. That we both hate Auburn. If the person was from Michigan or Ohio State, or well, if the person was from Michigan, I suppose we could say we're college football fans, and maybe we both ha- hate Ohio State. Okay, what was yeah. the the second part you were talking about? Is that there's some um, uh, some benefit of the affiliation? Yeah, it's 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 like you kind of want to take ownership. I mean, it's like what we talk about when you're at a game. I don't know. I remember going to this New York Giants Atlanta Falcons game as a Giants fan in Atlanta and the Falcons were smoking the Giants and the fans were like rubbing it in my face and I was a kid and it was kind of the first time it hit me that why How these, old were you? Uh probably, you know, I say I say this a lot. I think I was 12. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I was about 12 and it just hit me then that it's like why do these grown men and women think that they're better than me because the football players and the jerseys that they're wearing are beating the football players in the jersey that I'm wearing. Like, it was really bizarre to me. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's true that we, for whatever reason, take some ownership of the success and even the failures. We feel the pain of the failures of the team that we pull for. And so I think they're, you know, for a team like Georgia and for me, it's almost like telling someone I'm a Georgia fan. It's like they're like, oh, wow, you've you've got to have some fun years here recently. Like you, your life must be pretty fun <laughs> um, because you, you're the team you pull for wins games and, you know, crazy fashions in California. Um, and you probably go to some of those games. That must be very fun. You must be an interesting person. And also it's like, wow, they're very successful. That's that's kind of impressive that you're a Georgia fan, even well, though um, obviously well, let me, it's not. Let me let me let me make a point about what you're saying, and I, and I think you're um, you know I can tell that you you've thought about some of this, and there, there's some nuance in terms of your your thinking when we're when we're talking about the story of what happened in uh, maybe it was the Georgia Dome um, back when you were 12. <laughs> yeah. That there there's almost a you know you, and you were just saying that you pull for a team that was winning. But I think when you're talking about the story of how the fans were interacting, they would have said, hey, we are beating you. Yep. Right? That somehow that the team we are rooting for, we are part of that team, right? And so this idea that we are identifying as, you know, we're essentially the 12th man on on the team, on the football team. That this and look, this is a source of and I think when you were talking about from your perspective, when you're thinking more about it, there's going to be a tendency to clean it 
up a little bit in terms of going, wait, it sounds foolish to say that I was part of Georgia beating Notre Dame or I was part of the Illini making it to the Final Four. But I do think that is part of this process of identification, right? That when the team wins... I feel like if I'm a Patriots fan, I feel like, God, we, we, and, and that, that's a key word in all this. We win mm-hmm. a lot of Super Bowls. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Right. <laughs> so th- this part of this process of joining a team, even if we're really on an outsider rooting for it, the benefits of that, uh, in terms of the psychology of this, there, there's some older research that uses the phrase basking in reflected glory. Right. And, and I think right. that's a very, that's a very easy concept for sports fans is that when your team wins and what this research has done is shown, one of the things it's done is shown that when college teams win, there's a greater tendency to see people wearing the sweatshirts and the t-shirts of that team in classes on Monday morning, right? That it's like everyone wants to be associated with a, well, you know what? I, I should say everyone, a lot of people want to be associated with with a winner. Yeah, my uh, my favorite is church on Sundays because at least I don't know where I'm from in the South. It's okay, like okay, I don't know where he's going with this one, but continue. <laughs> you don't know as much about that, maybe. Um, and uh, in Alabama, like after the Iron Bowl, for example, every one of the winning team will wear their polo with their jersey to church, like they're they're going to uh, <laughs> a place of worship. Okay. Um, but but they are going to rub it in your face a little bit if their team beat yours, which is just hilarious to me. But it's that same thing as wearing the sweatshirt on a Monday. Well, but you know what's great about that is it, is it suggests, and I don't want to walk too far down this path, it suggests that something about what we're talking about is fairly primal, right? The, the tribal nature of people and how being affiliated with the winner, even if it's from a distance, that has some real value to to people, and they wanna they wanna express that affiliation. Even uh, you know they wanna let you know that Auburn beat Alabama while sitting in a pew. I mean, it's it's pretty <laughs> remarkable stuff. It really is. Okay, the other another source of value from these identities, and, and I can't quite remember how you said it, but when you were taught when we were talking about being part of a fan community it made me think that there's almost a level of, so so part of the benefit is being part of the community, but there can also be benefits in terms of the hierarchy within the, within a community. And I suppose there's a, there's definitely a trade-off on this that you can go too far. Is there value in being the person that knows the most about college football recruiting? Is there value in being that person? Um, there is for me. <laughs> because I'm everybody's okay. source uh, as far as uh, like I have friends that text me probably if you did a study like 200% more during football season and then they only text me in, in football related things asking me questions and wanting to know what I think and wanting to it makes you like this expert in the eyes of people and uh, and so okay, yeah so you become a you become a local expert and you get some psychic <laughs> benefit out of that yeah exactly exactly and and again socially it's like people want to talk to you you know or I guess people that are fans so you become a more focal I mean if you think about a social network as a network you become a more important part of that network you're more of a a core element of that network because you know what's going on yeah exactly exactly and so i 
I think this idea of identity and what the value of being a sports fan can be to an individual is really an important part of, it's an important part of this story, right? It's, it's about group membership. It's about being an important part of the group. Okay, so, so to sum up our discussion of consumer behavior related to sports, I tend to, and again, this is, this is how I think about it. I, and like I said, I, I overwhelmingly preach the ideas of community and identity. I think that's, those are the core concepts for, if, if, if you're managing a sports franchise or a league, I think that's where you've got to spend your time thinking. If you're thinking about how to you know, create a passionate fan base, you have to keep coming back to those core concepts. Now, we are taping this in the middle of June 2020, and this is a this is a moment when, you know, sports have been shut down. If I'm one of these leagues like the NBA or MLB or the NFL going into the fall, those are the core concepts I'm I'm trying to think about. I want to understand my consumers on a fundamental level so I can figure out how to respond to the pandemic and reinvest and rebuild and rejuvenate these fan bases that have been then put on the shelf. So with those being my two key words in terms of how consumer behavior works in this, I also tend to think of it as a, well, when I started this, I also started talking a lot about this idea of stories and narratives. So I tend to think of it being a a feedback process. So number one for sports fandoms are the stories, which become the legends, which may become the myths in, in some ways. Um, these stories become the basis for the community. Um, these are the stories that we shared when we're talking about people in our social network. They, they are conversation starters. They are the, the, the body of material, the doctrine that as a community that we all share. And once that community forms, then these identity issues become become really important, really critical, and that being part of the community provides me real, tangible benefits. Okay, for the last part of class, what I want to talk about, and, and I'm a little bit I'm a little bit hesitant to do this because I want to rely on some outside source material, Doug. Okay. I want to talk about, I mean, so consumer behavior related to sports, I want to talk about a largely shared example. And the example I want to use is the recent Michael Jordan documentary that aired on uh, ESPN over, when when did it air? Um, So it it was um, April and May? May, yeah. Yeah, it was April and May. 2020? Yeah, 2020. That's right. Okay, and so the reason I want to start with this is that I, I feel like that the Jordan story is as close to a body of shared fandom that, that I think we're going to be able to find, right? The other thing is that as someone interested in studying fandom and interested in sports analytics, that documentary was the greatest source material I have ever seen. So what was your reaction to it? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it was it was perfect for your purposes. Um, it's narrative and it's community and identity and all these keywords and these buzzwords that you love to use are just exemplified over and over and over again uh, well, in this documentary. The, let, let's start with the narrative. What were some of the high points to you? And let's let's sort of do it in a. I mean, and again, we won't 
you know, forgive us. We're not going to remember all the details of the timeline. But when yeah, you think sure. about the Michael Jordan story, what are some of the, the key points that, that pop into your head? Oh, I mean, they, they kind of briefly touched on his pre-Bulls career. Um, but the bulk of the narrative was with the Bulls. And so Jordan inherited this team that was not a professional basketball team and how they conducted themselves nor in their performance on the court. Um, You know, a lot of drinking and drugs that he was not a part of. Um, Let me let me add something to that just to keep the timeline consistent. Okay. There was a little discussion in there, right, that um, and it's one of the classic points about Michael Jordan, right? That he didn't make the varsity as a freshman in high school, right? Right. Yeah. He's, it's like, it's funny with Jordan because he's the greatest basketball player of all time. And yet you always feel like he's the underdog dating back to high school. And I I think that is a crucial part of his story because his every accomplishment, you go, wow, this guy didn't even make varsity when he was in high school, uh, when he was a freshman. that's a fun observation about Jordan, right? That he's always, um, and they make this point throughout the documentary, right? Exactly. That he is always overcoming something. Yes. Even if, um, I mean, who is the, the, I think there was a kid who was a guard for, I want to say it was the Washington Bullets at the time, that Jordan made up a story that the kid told him nice game. Um, yeah, it wasn't even getting, true. It's like in his own head, it was important to him clearly, um, but also from just a media perspective and a storytelling perspective, it's always told as if he is doing the impossible. So winning a championship with a team that's already won six championships. And yet it feels <laughs> like, it feels like, how are they going to do this? Like they've got this, you know, general manager that's trying to destroy the team. And, you know, they've got these tough opponents and everyone's gunning for them and they're injured and all these things. So yeah, that, I mean, that was, that was part of the story. You had him overcoming uh, the Pistons, you know, early, I guess, or his early career really was struggling against the Pistons and then finally overcoming them. And then championships, uh, retirement after his father died, uh, back to basketball. And I guess, I guess somewhere in there is his struggle in baseball, which was kind of minimized. Okay. So here's my, here's my list. And I think you just about captured all of it. And this was sort of just going from memory. The, the Michael Jordan narrative didn't make varsity was bypassed by teams in the NBA draft. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Jo- joined a team full of, and what I wrote in my notes was iffy guys, um, you know, cocaine and drinking well, in the hotels, no one taking it all that seriously. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then he became a star, the best, the, the star of the league, despite injury and lack of support. Okay. Okay. Then he had to overcome the, the Pistons and became a champion, right? And that's like, and, and they, there you go. That, I mean, that's, that's your narrative. Yeah, and they frame it, it as if the Pistons' uh, rivalry shaped him, the toughness he had to have and the grit that it took. You know, it's like he could uh-huh. not have become the champion that he was without having to face that adversity. And then personal tragedy, the, the retirement, the death of his father, and then coming back, the return and becoming a champion again. Though I, I think this time, who did he have to? Who did they have to overcome to become the champions again? I think it was largely Jerry Krause and right. perhaps uh, Dennis Rodman's need to party in Vegas occasionally. Yeah, that was the story. You know, I have my own opinions on that, which you can read on the Fanalytics blog. Um, but yes, that that was the narrative. Okay, that that's the narrative, and it's a great narrative. I mean, it's the. 
it's it's the greatest sports narrative that I think I've seen in in my lifetime, and the documentary does it does it beautifully. And even if you want to criticize the documentary, saying, "Well, you know, Jordan was involved, and they they glossed over some of these things, or they made the Pistons look bad," in, in some ways, it doesn't matter because this is this is the point to sports narratives and sports stories that it, it's not it, do, it actually doesn't matter what happened it what matters is how we remember it and i think that's how we that's how we remember it and you know outside of detroit michael jordan is almost universally loved and i think that that is the that that's a pretty good summary of the narrative though i think at this point with jordan we almost have to say the legend that right yeah goes along with uh, michael jordan's basketball career yeah, it's kind of a based on a true story type thing <laughs> at this point. Um, so I, I do like the word legend. Now, along the way, and so that that's the foundation. And along the way, there were some things that will totally res- that resonate with me, especially when I think about uh, the concepts we've been talking about today of community and identity. Um, in particular, when I say identity, can you think of the specific Michael Jordan endorsement that comes to mind? I mean, Nike's the first one. Nike? Okay. Yeah. Um, Coca-Cola, uh, Hanes. Um, okay. I mean, I'll tell you about... the one. Go I'll ahead. Tell you, and those are all great. And I know where you're coming from because when I think we, look, if you were to ask me the, you know, Jordan's top endorsement, I'm going right to, I'm going right to Nike, right? I think, I think we all have to. Yeah. But when I was th- what I was talking about is this idea of of identity and community. And Jordan actually had a had a campaign with Gatorade that featured a jingle called I want to be like Mike. Mhm. Yeah, that was that was next to my list. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so it is about the most explicit fan identity that I've ever seen in, in the world of sports marketing, right? It's like, it, it's, it's directly out there. It's like, you want to, look, you wear the Jordan shoes because you want to be like Michael Jordan. You want to play like Michael Jordan. But Gatorade took it to the ultimate and said, you want to drink this because you want to be like Mike. So it's, it's almost like they're taking the consumer behavior theory and using it directly to do the ad campaign. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely what they're doing. And uh, it's when you talk about identity, uh, they're literally saying you want your identity to be the same as this guy's. So do the things that he's doing, which is our product, <laughs> consuming our product. Yeah. And so, so the identity is definitely there. And identity is, is easy when we're talking about the star athletes, you know, um, be like Mike. I, I think I don't know if this would be your generation or the generation a little bit uh, older than you. Uh, there's definitely something where every kid of a certain age group, when they're taking a 20 or 25 foot shot, had Kobe. to yell Kobe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that was that was me. OK. <laughs> uh, and so the identity aspects of sports and, and, I, and I like I said, I, I think it's great for the Jordan because it's he did so much marketing work. So many product endorsements of Coca-Cola, McDonald's, that there was so much of that which was really kind of built on this idea of letting the consumer feel like they were part of, that they identified with this, this great athlete. Um, the, the other thing that comes through, very obviously watching that, uh, watching the documentary, is the 
fandom community that was built around Jordan and the Bulls, right? Can you think of examples of that? Yeah, I mean, I think of Barack Obama uh, in that documentary talking about struggling to get in the building because there were so many people. Um, but, you know, the of course, the products like Gatorade and Air Jordans and uh, even just jerseys. I mean, I still see Jordan jerseys. Pretty much any anyone that turns 23 now uh, gets a Jordan jersey just about. And they're super expensive if you actually buy a Nike one now. Um, as if they're rare or something, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, which I don't know, that's the, uh, I guess supply and demand, but, um, but yeah, so, I mean, all those things seem pivotal to the bulls, uh, fandom really. And well, really, the- it's really at this point, more of a Jordan fandom than a bulls fandom. Well, when I, the, the other, I, I, and I agree, but, but the other thing that I think is notable from that is how the Bulls and Jordan were almost portrayed as rock stars. Yeah. So whenever they had footage of the Bulls hitting a different town, you know, it's almost like they were mobbed for signatures mm. at the airport, whether it was in the U.S. or whether it was overseas. Uh, the Olympic aspects, you know, the, you know the, the, the dream team, the Bulls yeah. European tour. Yeah. Everywhere they went... There were crowds, essentially, there, there were crowds that greeted every time they got off the bus, it seemed like. And, and so it, it seemed as though the, the, there was this fan community that was this worldwide phenomena that was akin to you know, the footage we see of, well, now grandparents that were big fans of the Beatles or you know maybe the only other sort of equivalent is the K-pop phenomena these days where <laughs> you actually see crowds uh, just they, they can't help themselves from wanting to be close to the team or the athlete yeah the, they did a phenomenal job showcasing that in that documentary and i know we've seen uh people who have seen the dream team documentary know that it carried over into to that olympic team largely in part because of michael jordan and, and the only the other thing the the other thing i'll add to it in terms of the the fan communities and this is not directly stated, but so so yeah, I mean, just think about what happened. So the Bulls were a the Bulls were a dog of a franchise in Chicago. I mean, we used to, as a kid growing up in the suburbs, we used to go out there and we would we'd be able to watch Bulls games in the second balcony of the Chicago Stadium for five six dollars a game. Okay, mm-hmm. so this was this was almost non-existent when Jordan came in. They built the they built a new building. The clientele at Chicago Stadium really really changed. You could tell that the average income of the folks sitting in that stands went through the roof. You started seeing crowds everywhere around these guys. The number of Bulls jerseys and Jordan jerseys and tennis shoes and uh, you know basketball shoes were everywhere. It becomes this worldwide phenomena where people are treating them like literally rock stars. But the you know I think the exclamation mark on this story is that this fandom, this community was so was so defined there's so much interest in it that ESPN is able to do a documentary 20 plus years later and it becomes the I mean you know the pandemic helped for this but it becomes the largest sports story of a two-month period I mean it's truly uh, you know highlights something very magical and special about fan communities and fandom in general okay so the last point for today 
uh, like this idea of narrative is the building block for creating communities, which is the, the source of individual identities as something that provides value, is that the narratives are really where it gets interesting for folks that want to build their careers in sports analytics. So for the folks that want to devote their careers to being the, and, and again, given what we just said about the Jordan story, this is not a great name. For the folks that want to be the Jerry Krauses of the stories or the Billy Beans of the stories, the guys that want to build the team, I think narrative is the key thing because the narrative is defined by what happens by what happens on, on the field or on the court. And this is where having intuition, having expertise, having statistical tools ends up being really powerful. And so the next class, we're going to start to go into the deep dive of the sports statistics. But just to finish up the conversation with, with Jordan, and, and I'll ask you, Doug, um, can you think of, and this is a little bit of an unfair question because I have definite answers in mind and they're a little bit specific. Can you think of examples from Jordan's career where the analytics, and we can be loose about the term analytics, in fact, let's let's step back from that, where the decisions of the general manager intuition, yeah, had a real had a real influence on the Michael Jordan story? Yes. And you know, i'm I'm a pretty strong proponent of in professional sports, the immense importance of the general manager. Uh, but of course it dates back and, and they detailed this in the documentary to Rod Thorne drafting Michael Jordan. And yes, this was before Jerry Krause. Um, Rod Thorne had a decision to make and ended up selecting Michael Jordan for a number of reasons, clearly good reasons. Um, and then well, let, me, let, let me interrupt just for a second on that, that cause that's an interesting point, right? Because I, I, you could almost argue that Rod Thorne did not have a decision, right? That the Michael Jordan decision was was easy. But the guys, because uh, it was Port, the Portland Trailblazers chose Sam Bowie, mm-hmm. number two, I think. Mm-hmm. That was the that was the interesting decision. Yeah, and I, I mean, of course, it changed the, the course of history in, in the NBA. Um but yeah, I mean, Rod Thorne was incredibly fortunate and seems like it would have been a no-brainer, but you never know. I mean, there were so many teams that had, had passed on Jordan up until that point. Uh, similar situation with Kobe Bryant down the road. But Rod Thorne did select Jordan, and then under Jerry Krause's leadership, there was this decision to be made with coaching and whether Doug Collins was the man for the job or whether they should move in a different direction. And that's an interesting one to me because the Bulls were increasingly good under Doug Collins. They went from bad to pretty good under his leadership. And so it's very much like the Golden State Warriors when they made the move from Mark Jackson after their most successful season in years, uh, but transitioning to Steve Kerr and obviously reaping the benefits of that. We saw the same things with the Bulls transitioning to a brand new head coach in Phil Jackson. Um, but that's another decision where I'm sure, you know, the intuition of Jerry Krause, and I guess you could use the word analytics. I don't know how statistical they were in, in analyzing things, um, but there, there was a decision made to make a change. Well, okay. Yes. What do you, let, what? Let's stay there. Just, for, let's just stay there just for a second, because that, that's an interesting point. And I, I think that's definitely, 
something that's highlighted in the documentary, the decisions to replace Stan Albeck with Doug Collins and then replace Doug Collins with Phil Jackson. I think, you know, analytics, typically we think, well, analytics is based is about choosing the, the, the guy to play second base for you right. or the point guard we're, we're going to draft in the, the second round of the, the second round of the draft. But there's, there's no reason why, and again, we'll use a loose, we'll sort of use a loose definition of analytics. Krauss was definitely doing some analysis that suggested to him that it was better to move to a different type of coach. And even the end of this, this decision to replace Phil Jackson with someone else, you know, clearly that was a, I think often we think the general manager is about the players, but in Krause's case, it was definitely about analyzing the coaching situation and figuring out the right direction to go with that position. Absolutely. And, and beyond coaching, like you said, it's often about the players and, uh, you know, drafting Scotty Pippen, who did not play Division One basketball and, you know, Tony Kukoc in the second round. And, you know, there were some trades that were made. Obviously, the acquisition of Dennis Rodman was important. And that was a guy who Krause felt was undervalued and, and bringing in a guy like Steve Kerr as well. And then beyond that, there's the decision that the off-criticized decision to eventually break up the team and move on and looking at, okay, this, you know, Luck Longley, how much longer does he have? Uh, Dennis Rahman, how much longer does he have? What's the salary cap situation? Do, do we have the assets to bring in pieces around Jordan to keep competing? Or is this team better off now and in the future if we begin to move on? And so, again, that's another another instance that required the intuition and you know you could use the word analytics of Jerry Krause I think that's a perfect summary of it because you know the, the piece by piece all the decisions the changes that Krause made are a big big part of this story and you know when you go through the when you when you start to take a look at the Jordan story as in terms of analytics and again using that loosely in terms of the decision making of the front office uh, I find my, myself coming to the conclusion that th- this story was really almost equally. It was about Michael Jordan's greatness and his legend, but it, it's also the story of Jerry Krause trying to build a franchise that, you know, by whatever decision making he was using, whether it was his his gut feel, relying on his his scouts, his personal connections to uh, uh, was a coach winner with the the triangle offense. Mm-hmm. That this is really what drove the story. You know, Kraus was responsible for all, and his analysis was responsible. His decisions were responsible for all the moving parts that that orbited around uh, Jordan's greatness. Next time we are going to start to dig in really what I think people think of as the the core to the course, the sports analytics core. So in in terms of preparation for next time, what I want folks to do, and you you can take a look at this either, there's a slide on on the blog post, or alternatively you can go to a myriad of sources such as Wikipedia and take a look. And what I want you guys to take a look at is the NFL quarterback rating now this is a statistic that has 
several different names. You may also see this listed as the passer rating, the quarterback rating. Now, the, the one potentially tricky thing, and, and so definitely you know follow the link or take a look at the slide we provide, is that there are now a number of advanced statistics related to uh, the quarterback position. But I want you guys to focus on this specific one of the NFL quarterback rating or the passer rating. Now, one thing to, to realize as you go into this is that the statistic we want you guys to look at should not make a lot of sense to you. It should be a fairly unwieldy, overly complicated formula. So when we come back for class number four, uh, which would be titled something like Advanced Analytics or Developing Statistics, that is where we will start with an example of a very well-known uh, statistic that has been in use for a good amount of time, and we'll, we'll take a relatively deep dive into that statistic. Okay. So that closes out class number three. Uh, our purpose today was to take a, you know, not to reuse this phrase too often, a deep dive into the consumer behavior side of fandom to really uh, lay the foundation in terms of the, you know, the, the, end, the end goal of any sports enterprise is to build this fan base. So where you should be at at this point is to have a fairly deep understanding of fan psychology, fan communities. Like I said, next time we will start to move much more into the on-field or the player side of statistics. So un until next time, um, we'll get back to you guys in a couple of weeks. We ask you guys for the same thing in these uh, periods between classes of you know, engage with us. You can comment, ask questions on the blog. And as always, there's plenty more sports content in between the classes on the, the fanalyticswithmikelewis.com blog and on the uh, weekly podcast. Thanks.